Uh, Billy Crystal in the movie uh, City Slickers plays a character called Mitch Robbins and uh, he gives this speech to his young son's class at school. Value this time in your life, kids, because it's a time of your life when you still have your choices and it goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything and you do. Your 20s are just a blur. In your 30s, you have a family, you make a little money and you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? In your 40s, you'll grow a little pot belly, you'll grow another chin, the music starts to get too loud and one of your girlfriends from school becomes a grandmother. In your 50s, you'll have a minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's a surgery. In your 60s, you'll have a major surgery. The music's still too loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. In your 70s, you and your wife retire to Florida and start eating dinner at 2 in the afternoon, lunch at 10am and breakfast the night before. And you spend most of your time walking around the malls looking for the ultimate soft-serve yoghurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call? How come the kids don't call? In your 80s, you'll have a major stroke and end up babbling to some nurse your wife can't stand but who you call Mama. Any questions? That's his speech. You can imagine the look on the kids' faces. The problem is Mitch is having a midlife crisis. He's turned 39. He's decided he's halfway to death. He says, The world is a mess and all I can see in front of me is pointlessness and pain and death. Funnily enough, this is actually a comedy movie, by the way. Uh, his answer is to go on a Western adventure, an old-fashioned cattle muster. But of course, that's not really an answer, is it? It doesn't change the reality of the situation. It just makes you feel better about things. Those questions he struggles with are ones that many people face. How do I cope with the inevitable oncoming of death? How do I cope with a world that doesn't make sense in the face of death? People try to answer those questions in lots of different ways. For some people, it's physical fitness. Uh, they can prolong death if, if their body's in top shape. Or plastic surgery. They'll be getting older, but at least they don't look like they're getting older. Uh, or non-stop partying. I might as well just go for it. I'm going to die anyway. Extreme sports. I'm going to die. Might as well risk it and have fun. Health food. Uh, or maybe they link up with causes. Uh, to add meaning to an otherwise empty life. They, they get into environmentalism or political reform or protests against globalisation or slavery or poverty. Uh, all of it is looking for an answer to the question, if death is all there is in front of me, what's the point? What's the point of living? Death is a horrible, painful invasion, a destructive monster who relentlessly chases he never gets tired, he never gives up, he never misses his target. No matter how healthy you are or how young you look uh, or what legacy you plan to leave behind, death will one day get us all. That's the reality. But God didn't design things that way. Uh, in the beginning there was no death. Uh, and, one, uh, and one day there won't be death anymore again. God's plan is that that awful, scary monster called death will be put down, destroyed. Uh, I know that for sure. I'm completely convinced of it. How can I be so sure? Because God raised Jesus.
from the dead. It's a crucial event in history. It's the one that gives meaning to every other event, that gives meaning to life itself. It's the event that promises a restoration beyond this world. It's what gives me hope that life isn't as tragic or empty as Mitch Robbins imagines. Christ's resurrection is Paul's focus in these verses. Uh, What starts him off is a question that's come from the Corinthians. Some of them were apparently saying that there were no resurrection. There's no resurrection of anyone. Uh, Paul sort of hints at that in verse 12. We don't exactly know what their question was or their, their belief, but we do know how Paul answers. And uh, in this first section, he shows the consequences if you believe that there's no resurrection. Firstly, there are consequences for Paul and the other apostles. There are consequences for the Corinthians themselves and also for their loved ones who've already died. And it all hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. Look there in verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So when you deny that there's resurrection in general... What that most importantly means is you're actually denying that Jesus has been raised. And if you deny that, then Paul goes on to say three things will happen. His preaching is empty, the Corinthians' faith is empty, and thirdly, the whole Christian life is empty. So so verse 14, he says, if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless. Uh, The word there for useless is about being empty or futile. Paul's got nothing to say if Christ isn't raised. Verse 15, he says that makes him out to be a liar. He's saying something that God hasn't done. Second thing that's a consequence, Paul says the faith of the Corinthians is also empty. Verse 14, it's without basis, it's hollow. It's no better than believing in the Easter bunny or fairies at the bottom of the garden. But Those sort of things are just harmless. Uh, This is actually worse than harmless. Uh, Look down in verse 17. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Christ's resurrection was God's declaration that Jesus' death was effective, that it had achieved forgiveness and restoration. It was God's proof that Jesus died perfect and sinless and blameless. The resurrection is God's stamp of authority, his receipt for the transfer from Jesus' account to your account. My guilt transferred to Jesus, his innocence transferred to me. If the resurrection didn't happen, I couldn't be confident that I stood forgiven. But Paul goes on, it's not just you Corinthians, what about your loved ones who've already died? If you deny Jesus' resurrection, what does it mean for them? Verse 18, those who've fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If you deny the resurrection of Jesus, you're saying Christians are beyond hope. Uh, They've ceased to exist. Their their soul has just stopped being. Uh, That's the difference between a Christian funeral and a non-Christian funeral. One has has hope that's solid. Uh, There's sadness, but it's a solid hope. But a non-Christian funeral, there are, there are balloons, there are uh, smiles and, and airy-fairy sort of words, but there's no hope. It's just wishful thinking. It's Christ's resurrection that makes the difference at a funeral. 
empty preaching, empty faith. Lastly, Paul says the whole Christian life becomes empty. There in verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. (laughs) If there's no hope beyond death, then life for the Christian is hopeless and empty and pointless, same as everybody else's. All of us, Christian, non-Christian, we're just headed for blackness, for nothing. But Paul's saying more than that. He's saying that the Christian should be pitied more than the non-Christian. What's he mean there? Well, a bit further on, he explains what his life looks like. Uh, Jump down to verse 30. As for us, why why do we endanger ourselves every hour if Christ hasn't been raised? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul's point is life would be far easier if he wasn't a Christian. Why am I knocking myself out every day if Jesus hasn't been risen, if Jesus wasn't risen? Why would I go somewhere I know I'm going to be rejected, where people are going to hate me? If my message is empty and my faith is empty and death is all that's coming, why would I do that? Why am I bothering? What's the point? I might as well just take it easy. And I reckon for some of you, life would be easier if you weren't a Christian. Maybe you wouldn't be ridiculed by your friends at school. Uh, If you weren't giving money for God's work, you'd have more money to spend on fun things. Uh, You'd have more time to do those, the fun things that your money was able to buy you. You'd get to sleep in more. You'd have nights during the week where you could catch up with friends and do other things. Uh, We'd be silly, wouldn't we, if we'd given up all of that for nothing. We'd be wasting our time. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, the Christian life would be empty and futile and useless. It's all a bit depressing, isn't it? Well, it's just as well that's not the end of the story. Uh, Paul moves on to a big but. Have a look there in verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's painted such a depressing picture, we've almost forgotten that none of that's actually true. None of it will actually happen because Christ has been raised. And Paul goes on to describe two consequences, two things that flow from Jesus being raised. Uh, and the first consequence is, uh, is there in that verse we just read, verse 20. Uh, we read that Christ is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Because Jesus was raised, those who follow him will also be raised. The first fruits guarantee more to come. Uh, every year there's a charity auction at Flemington Markets for the first box of cherries of the season. And it'll often go for thousands of dollars, all these different people bidding for this box of cherries. They're not necessarily the nicest box of cherries you're ever going to get all season. Uh, they're probably pretty ordinary, really. You've, they've got to scratch around to find a whole box. But what makes them special is that they're the first. The fact that there's one box of cherries means there's many more to come. The celebration, the charity auction, are not because there's one box of cherries, but because it's the first box with many more to follow. 
And it's the same with Jesus. He is the resurrection first fruits. He's led the way through death. He's knocked down the front door and he's gone out the back door as well. And where he's gone, we follow after him because he's the first fruits. Have a look at the logic in verse 23. But each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come. Notice when all of this will happen, it'll be when Jesus comes back that we'll be resurrected. Uh, we'll receive our resurrected bodies when Jesus returns and, and not before. Well, Paul goes on to describe another consequence of the resurrection. Uh, he hasn't just cheated death, he hasn't sort of escaped death, he's actually destroyed death so that we don't have to suffer it. And that destruction of death, once again, will happen when Jesus returns as well. Have a look at verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Jesus does return, he will finally and completely destroy all dominion and authority and power. Whatever stands up against God, they'll all be destroyed. And one of those things will be death. Death will be destroyed last of all. But look at verse 25. It says, He must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. So it's describing two periods of time. Jesus is reigning now. He has defeated death and sin in principle. Our sin has been paid for. Our, our new life is guaranteed. And yet Christians still sin. Christians still die. So there's a sense in which Jesus reigns over sin and death now, but they're not yet under his feet. That'll only happen when Jesus returns and winds this world up and Jesus finally destroys death. And the victory that he's won in principle and that uh, we are experiencing part of will, will finally become a reality and we'll see 100% of that uh, and sin and death will be no more for eternity. Well, let's down to verse uh, 34. The, the next section from 35 on, Paul gets around to answering some of their questions. They might even be questions you've thought of. Uh, have a look at verse 45. Uh, verse 35, Paul says, But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With, with what kind of body will they come? Uh, perhaps those people who'd been saying there was no resurrection were, were making fun of the idea. Who ever heard of such a thing? Dead men walking around. Uh, that's ridiculous. But Paul says that sort of thinking is foolish. A, a resurrected body is not really very much like uh, our present earthly bodies at all. That's a mistake. Uh, we're not going to be walking corpses. We're not zombies. Uh, we'll be as different then as a seed is from a plant. Uh, from the, the plant, uh, the plant will be different compared to the seed it started from. Uh, it'll be as different as heavenly bodies are from each other or earthly bodies are from each other. Have a look down in verse 42. So it'll be with the resurrection of the dead. 
The body that's sown is perishable, it's raised imperishable. So this is the picture of a seed that gets put into the ground and produces a plant. There's a connection between those two things, but there's also a difference. It's sown in dishonour, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. The seed and the plant are connected, but they're also very different. That's what it'll be like with our old bodies compared to our resurrected bodies. Uh, The new bodies we'll receive will be imperishable, glorious, powerful and spirit-powered. Paul goes on to describe it a bit further. They'll be like, our bodies will be like Jesus' body. Verse 47. The first man, he's thinking of Adam, was from the dust of the earth. The second man... Jesus is from heaven. As it was with the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As it is with the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. He's thinking of Christians. And just as we've borne the likeness of the earthly man as humans, that's in this body, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. And so a simple answer to the question, what will our bodies be like when they're resurrected? Well, they'll be like Jesus. What was Jesus' body like on the Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday? Well, some people say he was completely different. For example, Mary didn't recognise him and the, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. But I'm not, that, I'm not sure that that's because he looked all that different. Lots of other people did recognise Jesus. I think he looked like Jesus. Jesus was more than just resuscitated. Uh, Lazarus, Lazarus was resuscitated, he came back to life, uh, he was uh, revived, but he went on to die again. He, he, he was brought back to life in, with the same body. Uh, but Jesus was resurrected. Uh, he was given his eternal body, never to die again. There were still some similarities between the old body and his resurrected body. He ate and drank. We know he had holes, had the holes in his hands and his side. But there were differences as well that are a bit mysterious. John's Gospel tells us that he appeared inside a locked room, which we wonder about, and that he disappeared instantly after he'd eaten with the disciples at Emmaus. Uh, So whatever Jesus' body was like, we'll receive that sort of body. It's described as real and physical, but glorious and spirit-powered. Both similar but also very different from our old body. Well, Paul continues with the description. What sort of events will happen uh, on that last day when we're resurrected? Uh, Look down in verse 51. I'll tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. So uh, he's thinking of two groups of Christians. Um, A Christian who's died and someone who's still alive. Uh, Paul says all Christians will be changed uh, at the end when the trumpet sounds. Uh, The dead will be raised imperishable. In other words, their souls will be clothed with their resurrected bodies. 
But he also says, and we will be changed. He's thinking of Christians who will be alive on the day when Jesus comes back. And he says they'll be changed. Their bodies, their physical bodies will be altered uh, and become imperishable, eternal, spirit-powered bodies. He describes it a bit like putting on a new set of clothes, putting on a coat over the top. Who knows exactly what that's going to be like? But it'll be a wonderful day. Because not only will Christians be changed from perishable to, be, to imperishable, but the whole creation will be restored, uh, will become the new heavens and the new earth, uh, even better than it was before, before sin and death entered. And as Paul gets to the end of the chapter, he, he begins to taunt, to tease death. It's a bit like the schoolyard bully who's finally been caught and he's been expelled and, and he's, he's marched... Uh, by the principal, uh, out of the school grounds for the last time. And the little kids he's bullied lean out the windows and they cheer and they ridicule him. Uh, Verse 54, death has been swallowed up in victory, they cry. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? They're making fun of death. And Paul concludes about what all of this means for us. Uh, It's got consequences today. Uh, when we know for sure what the future holds. Uh, It's what gives us life, uh, it's what gives our life fullness and purpose and direction. It gives us a reason for living, a reason to work hard in the things of the Lord. Uh, Life is worth living now because of where we're headed, what our future is about. Uh, Our life's purpose is to make sure others are ready for what we know is certain. So look at how he finishes in verse 58. Therefore, so the therefore is really for the previous 40 verses that I've just been telling you. Because all of that's true, therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. When people make fun of you, that you're a Christian, don't let it trouble you. You're right, they're not. You know where you're headed and you're certain they don't. Let nothing move you. He continues, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. It's not wasted. It's not empty. It continues. There are consequences for your work now, uh, unlike every other sort of work that we do on this earth. Uh, Our work now uh, rings on into eternity. Life is worth much more than what Billy Crystal thinks. It's not empty. Why? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Stand firm, let nothing move you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a lot in that chapter and uh, a lot of stuff that's not uh, super clear. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we do trust you uh, and we look forward to that day because we know it's going to be glorious. Uh, And those of us with, uh, with aching bodies, and uh, bodies that are starting to, to fall apart. We, we long for that, and uh, we long for you to come back. Uh, we pray that you will help us to trust that, to be certain, to have a certain hope about our future, uh, and we pray that that will energise and fuel um, uh, us to work hard, uh, to, 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 not, um, uh, to persevere and to stick at it, and not to be moved from the hope that we have. Um, These things are sure and they give us hope. 
uh, might we be a people who are hopeful uh, and who are sure of our future. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.